when the Antichrist comes on the scene, he will come on the scene in an atmosphere of chaos. Millions of people will have been caught up in the air. The world will be in turmoil. And it will be the chaos, the crisis of the day, that will cause people to be willing to abdicate freedoms that they have in order to have a sense of security. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part two of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, The Great Reset. In today's sermon, Dr. Brogy addresses the amazement produced by the Antichrist. Join us in Revelation 13, verse 2, as we continue. But let me give you kind of an example of how the Bible interprets itself. The best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. So what does he mean by the sea? You might want to circle the words out of the sea, draw a little arrow out into the margin, and write down three passages of Scripture. The first would be Daniel 7, 2 and 3. Daniel 7, 2 and 3, it's on the chart there. Let me read it to you. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts were coming from the sea, different from one another. So very often in the Bible, the word sea can be used literally of an actual sea, or it can be used figuratively of a great mass of humanity, typically the Gentile nations. And so the word sea and the word water is often used of the multiplicity of peoples on the earth. And many of the idioms that we use in English, if you think about it, they come right out of the Bible. We'll say, will you look at that sea of people? Where do we get that in English? It comes back from our Judeo-Christian roots, as many of our slogans do. Another passage, Isaiah 57, 20. There the prophet says, but the wicked are like the tossing sea. For it cannot be quiet, and the waters toss up refuse and mud. He's talking about the wicked Gentile pagan nations. Specifically, he likens them to the sea. Or later, within the Revelation itself, Revelation 17 and verse 15, John will use it in this way. And he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations, goyim, ethnoi, and tongues. So in these sections, again, it's referring to the lost Gentile nations of the world. And so Daniel 7 demonstrates that from these Gentile nations is going to come this one world leader that he is going to highlight in a number of different ways through different visions. Jesus called this, by the way, the times of the Gentiles. And so Daniel gives us a prophetic schedule of the Gentile nations starting with Nebuchadnezzar until the Messiah comes again. And so John writes, I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. So we need to ask a question. If the Antichrist is coming out of the Gentile nations of the world, as these three scriptural references refer to this sea, so to speak, do we have any idea as to what section of the world the Antichrist will come? And of course, the answer is yes. If you will notice the word the, it's not just a sea, but the sea, it's articular. So he's not referring to any old sea, but to a specific sea. And there are four seas that are usually mentioned in the Bible. The Galilean Sea, the Red Sea, the Dead Sea, and the Great Sea. And the Great Sea, of course, is not the Pacific or the Atlantic. The Great Sea in biblical times is what today we call the Mediterranean Sea. 
So if you put verse two together with Daniel's vision in the seventh chapter of Daniel, John is using the identical imagery because he's speaking about the same region of the world. Here is a modern day map of the former Roman Empire. It basically surrounded the Mediterranean Sea. And in both Daniel and Revelation, they teach that the Antichrist will come from the sea, from this section of the world where the former Roman Empire was. And so you have this progression of empires. And if you remember, the final empire in Daniel's vision is this 10-toed statue representing 10 nations from which section of the world the Antichrist will come. If you were here a few weeks ago, we studied Daniel 9, 26, and we saw that uh, Daniel makes a prophecy that the temple is going to be destroyed, a proclamation to rebuild the temple and the city will be set, and it brings you to Palm Sunday, and then after Palm Sunday, he reminds us that uh, the Messiah is going to be cut off and killed, and then um, there's going to be a heinous act Uh, that is going to unfold. And of course, it all happens from the prince who is to come. And who is the prince who is to come? He comes from the people that destroy the temple. Jesus, when he goes into Jerusalem, and he said, this is your day, and it was literally their day, the day in that mathematical prophecy given by Daniel. And they missed it, and he wept over the city because he knew what Daniel went on to say was going to happen, that this beautiful, magnificent temple and city is going to be utterly demolished, and over a million Jews die in the process. It was a sad day. And so the Antichrist is going to come from the Roman Empire, and if he comes from the Roman Empire, you might expect him to come from the capital of the Roman Empire, which was Rome, which is in Italy. Now think your way through this. Um, I want you to think through this because this is very important, not just to your knowledge of prophecy, but to personal application as to how this is going to affect your life. So he's coming, and some, by the way, have assumed, I should say parenthetically, that because he comes from the Roman Empire, the former Roman Empire, nobody debates that then he must be a Gentile. And that's a sloppy, exegetical decision that's not really founded in Scripture. He's going to be a Jew, and let me give you four reasons why. First of all, just like we have Jews in America, there are Jews all over the former Roman Empire. Not all the Jews, clearly, are going to migrate to Israel. That's clear from what happens at the second coming, that the remainder of Jews who did not come back into the land of Israel, they'll be brought back there, and God will judge them and separate true believing Jews from those who did not believe. And so in the... Uh, Italy, where Rome is, the capital, there are literally Yehudim Italkim, that is, uh, Jewish Italians. And so, one, it's very possible. Secondly, um, this Jew that we studied is going to go into the temple, and he's going to commit the abomination of desolation. Do you think any Gentile can just walk into a Jewish temple? (laughs) Remember the signs that they have unearthed from the temple that was last destroyed? And they said, if a, if a Gentile goes past this point, it ensures their guaranteed death. 
they're going to let this false Messiah come into their temple because they believe that he is the Messiah. And so he will then commit, of course, the abomination of desolation. And there's an event that accompanies the abomination of desolation that will at that point convince them, and we're going to come to this in this series, it will convince them that he could not possibly be their Messiah. Third, it's inconceivable to me that a Jew would accept a Gentile as the Messiah. You ask any Jew today, do you think the Messiah could be a Gentile and they'll look at you cross-eyed? What are you talking about, man? We know where he's going to come from. He's one of us. He's going to come from the tribe of Judah and from the family of David. And so for someone to present himself, remember, he's called the Antichrist. Christ, Christos, is the parallel word to Messiah, Messiah. Two different languages, same title. So he's Antichrist in that he comes in the place and against the Lord Jesus. But fourth and most importantly, there's great biblical evidence to show that the Antichrist will be a Jew. There's a number of passages that we can look at, but I want you to jot down at least two for further study. One would be Zechariah 11, verses 15 and 16. If you know the prophet Zechariah, then you know that he underscores that because of their unbelief, because of Jewish unbelief, they will embrace a false Messiah. And so Zechariah speaks not only of Messiah's first coming, but Messiah's second coming. Most of us at least know Zechariah 14, where the Messiah stands on the Mount of Olives and he splits it in two. That's never happened. It's going to happen unless you spiritualize scripture. But there's no room to spiritualize prophecy. And sadly, there's approximately 100 million nominal and real Christians in the United States that now reject that Israel is God's covenant people through whom God will complete his prophetic schedule. They are called replacement theologians. That is their theology says that the church is the new Israel. God is done with Israel. You can't interpret scripture that way. Why? Because even Daniel himself, when he interprets scripture, prophecy, how does he interpret it? Literally, Daniel 9, the chapter we studied, he's studying the uh, 70 years of deportation that Jeremiah the prophet spoke of, and he's saying, oh, we're almost at the end of the 70 years that Jeremiah prophesied. How did he understand 70 years? (laughs) 70 years. And so when you see Jesus and the apostles interacting with the Old Testament, all of the prophecies that they interpret, they take it plain face value. They just literally interpret those passages. That's not to deny idioms and figures of speech, but when you understand the symbol and what it means, then you literally interpret it accordingly. And so uh, here in Zechariah 11, most of us at least know Zechariah 11 for something, right? It's one of the passages that also contains a prophecy for the first coming, that there's coming this guy who's going to betray the Messiah for what? 30 pieces of silver. Though when you read it in the New Testament, he quotes Zechariah 11, but he introduces it, the prophet Jeremiah said. And of course, the liberal critic says, ah, there's an error, see? It's not even the prophet Jeremiah. And it's their own ignorance because very often they would take scrolls and they would combine two together. And so one scroll was Jeremiah and Zechariah. They were combined together in a single scroll and for good reason. 
And so typically when you had two books combined in a single scroll, when you quoted the scroll, you quoted the book or the author that was most prolific. And of course, that was Jeremiah. But here in Jeremiah chapter 11, he portrays, he does this little play acting between a good shepherd and a foolish shepherd. Let me read it to you. Zechariah 11, verse 15. The Lord, or Yahweh, said to me, take again for yourself the equipment of a foolish shepherd. For behold, I am going to raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for the perishing, seek the scattered, heal the brokenhearted, or sustain the one standing, but will devour the flesh of the fat sheep and tear off their hoofs. So God has the prophet Zechariah do a little play acting between this good shepherd. He takes equipment to portray a good shepherd and then this foolish shepherd. And if you know the chapter, because of their unbelief, they're going to embrace a foolish shepherd who really won't care for you. And it is a prophetic picture of the coming Antichrist. Another text you might want to jot down, Jesus said the same thing. John chapter 5 and verse 43. There in that section of scripture, Jesus said, I have come in my father's name. And you do not receive me. If another shall come in his own name, you will receive him. Because you rejected the good shepherd as he's portrayed in John, Yeshua or Jesus prophesied you'll embrace another shepherd. Now, most of you know in Greek, there are two words for another. There's the word alos and the word heteros. Alos means another of the same kind. Heteros means another of a different kind. And so like heteros comes directly into English as, say, heterosexual, which speaks of differing sexes, or heterodoxy, which, say, which is used to teach something that's different, versus orthodoxy to teach something that is true. Well, Jesus uses the word alos, like he does that, if you remember in John 16. I'm going to send an alos helper, another helper like me. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send you another one just like me. So there's another one who in some sense, alos, another shepherd, another one that will come that is like Jesus. How is he like Jesus? Well, he has great power, except Jesus comes with the power of the Holy Spirit. He, as we'll see, comes with the power of the dragon, with Satan. But he's another one like Jesus in that he's a Jew. He's from the tribe of Judah. He's from the family of David. Now, unfortunately, sometimes, again, when we use the word antichrist, we think of it only in the sense of against Christ or the opposite of Christ. But remember, the prefix anti is often used in Scripture instead of. And that's really where the emphasis is here, is he comes in the place, he comes instead of Christ. So he comes up out of the sea, this Jew, from a geographical region from the former Roman Empire. And he also comes, as Revelation teaches in the 11th chapter, the 7th verse, up out of the abyss. That is, he comes with the power of the evil one on his back. He's the opposite of Jesus. Initially, he comes as an angel of light. And that's how Satan often appears, as an angel of light. And Paul says, so don't his preachers. He comes initially as a man of peace. Oh, they love him. But once the abomination of desolation takes place, his cruel, vicious, satanic power begins to express itself. Verse 1 again, and the dragon stood up on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. 
Again, these verses are, this verse is using symbolic language, and it helps us to understand something about the kind of person he is and the kind of authority that he has. So again, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. You might want to put out in the margin Revelation 17 and verse 9. Let me read it to you. There, uh, the Apostle John, having just symbolically described the Antichrist as having seven heads, he then says, here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Revelation 17 describes one of two great harlots, the whore of Babylon. One is a religious whore, the other is an economic whore. And we're going to see both of them bled together before we're done in this series. But there is a one world religion that is coming that is going to be built on a city with seven mountains or seven hills. And I only know of one city in the world that is described in that fashion. And of course, that's the city of Rome. In addition, verse one speaks of 10 horns. And in the prophet Daniel, he tells us horns represent power and authority. But here you might want to write down Revelation 17 and verse 12, where he describes the 10 horns as 10 kings. Let me read it to you. The 10 horns which you saw are 10 kings who have not received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast, with the Antichrist, for one hour, just a short time. So horns are symbols of kings or kingly power. And so the Antichrist is going to arise, as the prophet Daniel says, from a revived Roman Empire. There'll be 10 nations within the former Roman Empire that will form a coalition of sorts. And then there will be an 11th king that will come up in their midst. Let me read to you Daniel 7 and verse 8. While I was contemplating the horns, that is the 10 horns, behold, another horn, an 11th, a little horn, came up among them. And three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And so there's this little horn. He starts rather diminutively. He's called a little horn, but he's going to come to great power. People say, well, I think the Antichrist is this, you know, world leader. Everybody knows him. He'd be a perfect leader. Actually, he's a little horn. He's kind of a nobody, but he's going to become a somebody in a short period of time. We've seen this in recent days. We've seen the president of Ukraine, and unless you've been to Ukraine dozens of times, you don't usually think about who the president of Ukraine is, but every American says, oh, it's Zelensky. You know, he was a nobody six months ago, but now he's on the lips of people across the world. That's what the Antichrist will be like. He'll be a Jew, he'll be a nobody, and he will soon become a somebody. And amongst these 10 nations, there'll be three that will fight him. And this little horn will come up and he'll overthrow them and he will rule with authority and power. And on his head, we read in verse one, were blasphemous names. Again, this signifies as we will see that these world leaders will stand in open defiance of all that is holy and true. Now, there are many names given for the Antichrist, about 30. Some would say 33. I've only been able to find 30. Um, But here's a few of the ones that are best known. The little horn, the prince who is to come, the king who does as he pleases, a king of fierce countenance, the son of perdition. By the way, that name is given to Judas too, right? The man of lawlessness, a foolish shepherd, the worthless shepherd, the willful king, 
a despicable person and probably his best known name, the Antichrist. But he's coming. He's going to mesmerize the world. He has an agenda and he is empowered by the devil, the prince of hell himself. Now notice verse 2 of Revelation 13. And the beast, the Antichrist, which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like those of a bear, his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power in his throne in great authority. So he's using the identical imagery that the prophet Daniel uses. Why? Because he comes out of the same region of the world that Daniel describes. And he'll be a fearsome man. He'll be a powerful man. We're told, and the dragon gave him his power in his throne in his authority. So he does three things. First, he gives him his power. Satan gives him his strength, his ability to rule, to be dominant. Second, he gives him his throne. That is, he's received as a leader of the world because Satan gave him this dominion. And third, Satan gives him great authority. The word exousia means to do as you please. It can be used positively or it can be used negatively in Holy Scripture. I just walked through a sliver of one verse where you see how Scripture interprets Scripture. And that's why it took me 72 hours of preaching to do the book of Revelation. Because Scripture has to interpret Scripture if we're going to rightly divide the word of truth. So that's the authority given to the Antichrist. Secondly, there in your note-taking outline, let's think for a moment. It leads naturally into the amazement produced by the Antichrist. The amazement produced by the Antichrist. Practically speaking, why is it that these people are deceived and follow after the Antichrist. Well, first of all, because as we studied in the seal judgments, the first of the four horses of the apocalypse is the one who comes mimicking Jesus on a white horse as a man of peace. He's got a bow with no arrows. And the world thinks, man, this is a wonderful person. And he's going to pull off peace in the world and among other places in the Middle East. But there's another reason. He comes with great deception, and that deception is unfolded in verse 3. Notice, I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. Now, here's the challenge. Some people, by the way, spiritualize this verse because they say, well, what vindicates Jesus as Lord? Romans 1.4, he was declared with power to be God the Son, how by the resurrection from the dead? That this is one miracle that Satan cannot duplicate. Therefore, this man was not really dead. And by the way, Jesus uses as a defense for his own deity, his resurrection. That he has power to raise people out of the grave to walk on streets of gold or people out of the grave to live forever in a place of eternal retribution. And he has power to raise himself from the dead. The resurrection is affirmed by all three members of the Trinity. No one will take my life. I'll raise it up again. How was he raised? By the spirit of holiness. How else was he raised? By God the Father. You cannot separate the members of the triune God. With that said, Jesus said this in John 5, 21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. In the Old Testament, God the Father, Elohim, The Elohim of Israel is credited as God by his ability to give life. And so for Jesus to claim, I have the same ability to give life as God the Father is to make himself equal to God. And so it's reasoned, well, then the Antichrist can't raise someone from the dead. He can't be raised from the dead. Mustn't really be dead that this is a fake death and a fake resurrection. 
And while I appreciate them wanting to protect the Lord Jesus, it's not a sound interpretation. And let me explain why. You're thinking, people. The simple reading of the scripture is clear that this man actually died. So how do we understand it? Well, there's several possibilities, several options. Number one, we know that Satan has been given power to perform false miracles. That's one of the themes in Matthew 24 during the time of the tribulation. And it's seen in scripture. We've been studying with Pastor Larry, uh, the Exodus. And we saw in the Exodus how these magicians were given power to take their rod and to turn it into a snake and to take water and turn it into blood. So they had some power, though it was limited. We saw in the book of Job how Job uh, by, is destroyed his, his body by boils that Satan puts on him miraculously. How a tornado of sorts comes and wipes out his family. Uh, even Judas had power. Now, I don't think Judas's power came by Jesus, I mean, by, by Satan, but from Jesus. But still, he had power, and he was not a believer. In Matthew 7, at the final judgment, Jesus speaks of those who preach in his name, cast out demons in his name, perform miracles in his name, and he'll say to them, I never knew you, because an unbeliever can do all three of those things. And of course, when Judas did miracles, um, he had the same authority, Matthew 10, 1, authority was given to him and all the disciples over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. So nothing within the biblical text indicates that Judas did not do the same miracles that the rest did. So some would say, well, you know, while it's not true of Judas, he was an unbeliever, but Satan can do miracles. And so Satan did this miracle in bringing the Antichrist out of a dead state. A second possibility that some would argue is that God did it. God did it to this unbeliever. He did it as a judgment because of people's rejection of the Messiah. But I think third, there's a better explanation. I think this guy was, will really, truly, genuinely be dead. And I think Satan will perform the miracle. And let me explain why that does not discredit the resurrection of Jesus. If you remember in the scripture, there are eight people who are raised from the dead. Here's a list. There was Elijah who raised the widow of Zarephath's son. There was Elisha who raised the Shunammite woman. There was a man who is thrown into Elisha's grave. Remember, he lands on his bones and he springs right out of the grave, I guess six feet, and comes back to life. Uh, Jesus did three of the raisings. He raised the widow of Nain's son. He raised Jairus' daughter, and most famously, he raised Lazarus from the dead. Peter himself raised Tabitha called Dorcas in Scripture, and Paul raised Eutychus. Now, Paul and Peter and Elisha and Elijah raising people from the dead didn't mean they were God. You know, when kids come in, I'll ask them, well, what if they nailed Jesus to a cross, which they did, buried him in a tomb, which they did, but he didn't come back to life? What would that mean? And if they're sharp and understand the meaning of the resurrection, they'll say, well, it meant that he's not God. And so the calendar is dated, what, 2022, Anna Domini, in the year of the Lord. The resurrection, he was declared with power by the resurrection from the dead. But occasionally, some perceptive child will say, well, if that means he's God, the resurrection, what about Lazarus? Because he's not God. Well, understand, there's a major difference between being raised to life and being resurrected to life. 
If you enjoyed today's message, remember that you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program God's Prophetic Schedule 014. Don't forget that you can support the ministry of Search the Scriptures by calling or you can give online at searchthescriptures.org. Your generous donation plays an important role in providing biblical teaching and spreading the gospel. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.